This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on Something You Should Know, why you are probably thinner, smarter, and better looking than you think. Then, hacking. It gets pretty interesting when you broaden out the definition of that word. Basketball, dunking, was originally a hack. It wasn't in the rules. A Formula One racing, someone I think in the 80s shows up on the field with a six-wheeled car. Those are all hacks. Also, how colors can change the way food tastes. And your attention span. It's harder to stay focused on one thing. We switch our attention more and more, and that's a problem. We know that people make more errors when they switch their attention. There have been studies done with physicians and nurses and pilots, and we know that people make errors when they're uh, switching their attention. All this today on Something You Should Know. So I live with seasonal allergies, always have. If you do, and it seems so many people have allergies, you know it's no fun. For me, the worst part is that allergies ruin my sleep because I get all stuffed up and and then I can't sleep. Plus, allergies can make my voice sound weird, which in my line of work is it's not a good thing. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. I use Claritin D, I have for years, for the simple reason that it clears up my allergies and it relieves the stuffiness. If you have seasonal allergies, you really should try Claritin D. You see, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms, like the sneezing, watery eyes, scratchy throat, and it decongests your nose so you can breathe better. If you're ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi there. Welcome to Something You Should Know. So here's a question for you. How well do you think you perceive yourself? If you're like the average American, you probably underestimate yourself. Some studies found that people rated themselves lower than other people rated them in several departments. For instance, appearance. Self-ratings were 20% too low on average. We tend to see our features and flaws, while other people see our charm and personality. Smarts. Most women underestimate their own IQ by about 5 points, and they tend to overestimate other people's IQs. Men, on the other hand, typically guess their IQs are higher than they actually are. Body weight. 
When participants were shown two photos of themselves and one of them was slightly skewed to look heavier, 70% of women incorrectly chose the distorted picture as being accurate. And that is something you should know. When I say the word hacking or hacker, you likely think of a computer hacker, someone who's up to no good stealing identities or stealing information or planting a virus. But when this discussion is over, you're going to look at hacking a bit differently. Bruce Schneier is a renowned security technologist who has written more than a dozen books. He teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School, and his latest book is called A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. Hey Bruce, welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. So my image of a hacker is pretty clear in my mind of somebody at a computer keyboard stealing stuff or doing bad things, but that's not really your definition. Well, it kind of is my definition. What hacking is, is taking code, rules, computer code, finding things in it that shouldn't be there, unintended functionality, ways to trick it, ways to get it to do things it shouldn't do, and then use that to your advantage. Now, right, to be fair, a lot of hackers in the computer world are criminals. They're trying to steal your identity, steal money, or maybe they're governments and trying to steal information, right, for intelligence gathering. And that's the computer way of thinking of hacking. And I'm just generalizing that to any system of rules. So the example I like to use is the tax code. It's not computer code, but it's code, it's algorithms, right? You, you plug in your money, you do some calculations and you get how much you owe. And that code has vulnerabilities. We call them loopholes. It has exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And it has black hat hackers. We call them accountants. So it's the same thing, just to more general sets of rules. And some of the areas that you talk about, like give me some other examples besides the tax code of, of what hacking is in your view. So this is fun. I mean, I love doing this. Uh, if you're a frequent flyer, you've probably heard of mileage runs. That's a hack. So you know, my definition of a hack is an unintended and unanticipated way of using a system to your advantage. Right? It's not breaking the rules. It's finding a loophole in the rules. So a mileage run. When you think about the rules of a frequent flyer plan, they're supposed to reward frequent flyers. You're not supposed to like fly just to get the miles because you found some tricky route that gives you a lot of miles for a little bit of money. Right? It's not against the rules, but it kind of violates the spirit of the rules. That's a hack. There are lots of uh, hacks in sports. So in basketball, the dunking was originally a hack. It wasn't in the rules. In swimming, someone realized in the backstroke, you could stay underwater a long time. And you're following the rules, but you're not really doing what you're supposed to. A uh, Formula One racing, someone I think in the 80s shows up on the field with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheel car. And they say, here's the rule book. It doesn't say that. But those are all hacks. And you can go into uh, corporate America. So Uber is really hacking taxi regulations. They're finding loopholes so they can deliver the service without a lot of the regulation 
that taxis have to adhere to. Airbnb does the same thing for hotels. Financial uh, hedge funds and other financial systems full of hacks, not illegal, not even necessarily bad, but loopholes in the rules. And so a lot of the hacks that you just described may have been bending the rules, but seemingly eventually become part of the rules. That depends on the rules and who's in charge of them. So the Formula One race car hack was declared illegal. The rules were rewritten so that you couldn't have more or less, just in case, than four wheels in your car. Dunking was originally against the rules, but it became legal because the fans liked it. Uh, Curving your hockey stick is another example. Now, we know the hockey player who invented you can curve your hockey stick, changed the game dramatically, but it was a more exciting game. Some of these financial hacks, they're declared illegal. There are uh, IRS hacks that every year they go into court and the IRS, so the, 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 I guess the judge says, no, you can't do that. So some are, are made part of the system and some are declared illegal. It depends. In the computer world, they're almost always declared against the rules. You find a hack against Microsoft Windows, in the next update, there will be a patch against that hack. You find uh, a loophole in the tax code, it'll be patched eventually, maybe. It might take five, 10 years. So it very much depends on the system. So hacking isn't necessarily bad. It's a way systems evolve. Well, it does sound but, like a lot of the the hacks and the hackers that you're talking about are kind of on the leading edge, and maybe some of them become illegal and fall off. But but they're like they're like leading the charge to change the game, whatever game we're playing. Yeah, we call that the bleeding edge, right? It's legal, uh, but you might get hurt doing it. And, and yes, so you could look at what Uber is doing as transforming a moribund and staid taxi industry into something newer, more exciting, more profitable, more interesting. Or you can look at it as skirting the rules that keep passengers safe. There are different ways of looking at it. You can think Airbnb the same way. So it very much depends on the system and your point of view. So the filibuster is a hack invented in ancient Rome. It's actually a very old hack. Uh, some Roman senator realized the rules said that you had to conclude all business by sundown. And he realized if he never stopped talking, nothing would get done. Now, that carries to today. And there's legitimate debate about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But back in ancient Rome, it was definitely unintended, unanticipated way of taking the rules and subverting them. And then do people ever come along and hack the hack? Well, so now we're getting into, uh, you know, uh, wheels within wheels. I mean, yes, right? So you think about the filibuster. The filibuster was originally you have to get up there and keep talking. I mean, you can't stop talking. That's the rule. And then there are sort of loopholes in that rule of the filibuster that now in the Senate, you can just like say I'm filibustering without actually filibustering. So, yes, you can find hacks within hacks because it's loopholes within loopholes. And this is, I think, a problem is a bad word. This is an essential truism of systems that any system of rules that we create 
will necessarily be incomplete. It'll have things we haven't thought of where technology will come along and change what's possible. So all systems are hackable. The question is, how do you respond to a hack? How do you adapt it? How do you take the good hacks and make them part of your system and expel the bad hacks? And then who gets to decide? We're talking about hacking in a way you probably haven't heard before. My guest is Bruce Schneier. He is a security technologist and author of the book, A Hacker's Mind. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So Bruce, it seems a lot of these hacks come as really kind of classic out-of-the-box thinking. You know, no one would have thought to dunk a basketball until someone thought to dunk a basketball. I mean, it's it's kind of leading-edge, out-of-the-box thinking that pushes the boundaries. That's right. And so it's not in the rules. Just like the number of wheels on your car are not in the rules because of course it's four wheels. Cars have four wheels. Someone realizes that it's not in the rules, takes advantage of it, and then the owner of the rules has to decide. The Formula One Racing Commission, whoever they are, I know they have a French name, or the IRS in the United States, or the Federal Trade Commission, or Microsoft, if it's one of their computer programs, decides is this good or bad? Do we have to fix it? But do we make it part of the system? Maybe it's just my perception, but listening to you, it seems like there's a lot more hacking going on in the world today, as you describe it, than ever before. I think that's right. I think there is some way of thinking about hacking as a function of where we are today in society. That there is very much a feeling that if you can get away with it, it's okay. So you'd look at rules and you look for the mistakes. You look for the loopholes, look for the, you know, the comma that's out of place or someone got a word wrong or didn't think about this boundary condition. And the ethics of society are, well, that means I can do it. And you find a way to, uh, to pay a lot less tax that, that, you know, isn't cheating, but was unintended. There's no moral qualms about using it. 
It's legal. Of course I can use it. So I think just the rise of systems, also the rise of technological systems, and this notion that if I find a loophole, it's fair game, leads to to more hacking today than ever before. So here's a hack, I I would think, according to your definition, here's a hack that, that comes up sometimes. You get a parking ticket and the officer transposes the letters on your license plate on the ticket, or they get the color wrong on the ticket, and you go to court and say, what? That's not my car. I, I don't... That's not my license plate number. That's a hack, and some people would say, well, good, good for you, you caught it. Others would say, well, you kind of cheated. But here's the issue. If we as society want people to follow traffic rules, then we don't like that. I mean, I as an individual got the ticket... I'd rather not pay the $50 fine. So hacks are like that. You know, the individual gets an advantage, but society as a whole suffers the consequences. So what's your, is your message, why not, you know, give it a shot? I mean, what are you, what, what are you, are you just an observer here or an advocate? I'm not an advocate for hacking in general. My message is more to understand this as a process so that you can recognize hacks when you see them and realize that as a system owner, whether it is you know, the Formula One racing authority or the citizens who nominally you know, run the democratic country, decide whether the hack is a good thing or a bad thing. And if it's a good thing, encode it in the rules. If it's a bad thing, deliberately encoded to be against the rules. Talk about gambling, because you you write about all the hacks in gambling. Card counting and blackjack, totally a hack. And it's an interesting one, because the casinos know about it, and now they have technology to detect it. So it's not against the rules, but casinos use their ability to deny anybody they want access to the casino, that if they catch you card counting, they will bar you. Wait, I, I thought card counting was against the rules. It's not because it's strategy. Card counting with a machine, with a computer, is against the rules. A right? computer in your shoe, uh, communicating with somebody from outside the casino, that's all against the rules. But in your head, there's no rule you can write that would make card counting illegal. All you can do is detect it and then kick them out. Because card counting is a, is a strategy that is visible. What's another gambling hack? So there's a pretty famous blackjack hack that involved uh, MIT students. And this was card counting, but they did it in a very clever way. They divided up the card counting tasks. So one person was the counter who would never change his bet. So he's undetectable. And then compatriots would steer whales, uh, big bettors, to tables that had an advantage. So card counting is all about figuring out when the deck is in the player's advantage versus the house advantage. So normally, when you're a card counter, you sit at a table, wait for that opportunity, and when it happens, you change your betting pattern to, uh, to make money. That's what's detectable. So the MIT group had the clever idea to divide up those tasks. So the counter never changed his bets and the better 
never changes bets, just move from table to table. That actually made a fortune and was never detected. Eventually, the MIT group disbanded and wrote a book about it, which is how we know. You know, it seems like hacking, the way you describe it, is human nature, that that there's always going to be a push against the rules or to push the boundaries, to push the limits. You know, remember the the high jump guy that changed the way people jump over the bar? Now everybody jumps over that way, but when he did it first, that was that was kind of a hack. People said, wait, wait, you're not supposed to do it that way, but he did, and now everybody does it. Everybody's pushing the boundaries. It's human nature. And that's a a great example, and it is human nature, right? We are natural advantage seekers. We look for loopholes. We look for ways to evade the rules. I mean, we did this as kids. You know, our parents give us a bedtime or a requirement to eat our vegetables and You know, we look for the loophole in the rules. We look for the way to do what our parents said, but not in the way they intended. It's fundamentally human nature. And it's also human nature to try to make the rules airtight, to make rules that everyone follows. And there is always this tension between the rules and those of us who want to abuse the rules for our own advantage. But don't you think abuse is abuse the rules is is a bit strong in in a lot of cases? It's just why not try this? Let's give this a go. It doesn't mean I mean I'm not using abuse in a pejorative sense. I'm using abuse in not following their spirit. And you know we could argue terminology here. Hacks are are innovative. They're creative. They have positive outcomes. They're also subversive. They're countercultural. They have negative outcomes. Their house systems break. Their house systems evolve. They have good and bad. And they are, as you say, fundamental human nature. You know, we are a species that does this and we always will do this. And if all systems are hackable, then we'll do this all the time to everything. But, but so how do we as society harness that creative nature? to improve systems without destroying them, without, without harming. So how did hacking, well, I don't know where the word hacking comes from, but it has, a, a, I think in most people's minds, a pretty negative connotation that's people doing bad things versus people who press the limits, who push the boundaries, which has a much more of a positive connotation of these are the champions, these are the people that go the extra mile kind of thing. But hacking has a really negative, bad reputation. You know, that was really the media in the 1990s, that hacking was originally this creative endeavor, this figuring out a clever hack, a clever way around the rules to get what you want done. Early computer systems have a lot of rules that are really complicated. And if you find a novel trick, a hack, that's a good thing. It also became associated with exceeding your authority on a computer system. And that became criminal when I do it to your computer system. So hacking became this criminal thing. The media grabbed that criminal definition. So that's the word that most people heard first. They heard hacking as something criminals do. But it's not necessarily true. And, you know, in the 90s, there even was this debate in the computer security community 
that can we have hacking be good and cracking be bad? Black hat hackers versus white hat hackers, different ways to separate the good from the bad. You know, to me, hacking is a skill and you can do it for good or bad, just like plumbing is a skill. You could be a good plumber, you could be the evil plumber. Plumbing is just a set of expertise about pipes and water or gas. And so hacking is, I think, the same thing. It's a way of looking at systems, looking at sets of rules and finding unanticipated outcomes, finding loopholes, finding little tricks. And lots of us do it naturally. This is the notion of tax loopholes. No one calls it a hack, but it's the same process. Well, certainly I and, and probably everyone listening now has a different and deeper understanding of what hacking is and, and how it applies to the rest of the world. It's really interesting. Bruce Schneier has been my guest. He is a security technologist. He teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's authored about a dozen books. His latest is called A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. This is fun. It's been a while since I've talked about the Jordan Harbinger Show, but I've, I've been listening all along. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast that I'm going to predict you will really like since you like this podcast, Something You Should Know. With each episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan digs deep into fascinating topics with fascinating people. It's a little different than the topics we cover, but still so, so interesting. Recently, he had a great two-part conversation with ex-federal agent Robert Mazur about how money laundering works. Now, I've always, I've always wondered about that, and well, now I know. And there was another great conversation with Adam Gamal. He's an American Muslim who fought terrorism in one of the U.S.'s most secret special forces units. It is a riveting conversation. If you want to broaden your worldview and discover some truly thought-provoking ideas and insights, you really should try The Jordan Harbinger Show. As you'll hear, Jordan is a great interviewer and really gets people to open up. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I bet you've heard people talk about the fact that our attention span is shrinking. That in today's world, with all the distractions, it's difficult to keep focused on any one thing continuously for a long period of time. The implications of that are many, as you might imagine. Hard to be productive if you can't stay focused. It's hard to think really deeply about something if you can't stay focused. And it gets worse. Here to talk about this and reveal how we can all improve our attention span is Gloria Mark. Gloria is a professor at the University of California at Irvine and author of a book called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Hey, Gloria, welcome. Thank you. So first, is that true? Is it true that our attention span is shrinking? It is true according to our measurements. I started measuring this back in 2004, and at the time we found that people would spend on average of about two and a half minutes on any screen before switching. Uh, then around 2012, it went down to about 75 seconds. And in the last 
five or six years, it's reached roughly a, a steady state, averaging about 47 seconds on any screen. Uh, it's not just my research. Others have done independent studies, and they've found results that are within a few seconds. Uh, so it seems to be a, a fairly robust result. So we've gone from minutes to seconds in our attention span. Why do you suppose that is? Well, there's a lot of reasons. There are, of course, uh, notifications, notifications for email, social media. But there are many, many other reasons as well. For example, it turns out we are just as likely to self-interrupt that is, as we are to be interrupted by something external to us, like a notification. What do I mean by self-interrupt? I mean that a person might be working, you know, let's say you're typing in a Word document, and then for no apparent reason, that person suddenly stops and goes and checks social media or checks email or checks their phone. They, they switch of their own accord. There are social factors that compel us to check social media and Slack and, and email. And there's also uh, emotional reasons as well. So it's, it's not a simple answer. But the average is going down. The average seems to be going down, although perhaps it's already reached its nadir. You know, this, this might be the low point, but we, we don't know. And so is it safe to assume that if that's what's happening with attention span as it relates to screens, that's what's happening to attention span in other areas of life? I am an empirical researcher, so I can't make that claim unless I actually study it. So the short answer is we don't know. All I can say is this is what we found uh, when people use their devices, which happens to be a good portion of the day. And let me add this to it, that uh, if you look at uh, how often shot lengths in film and TV change, those have also decreased in length, down to an average of about four seconds. And people are on some kind of screen, whether it's their computer phones, whether they're watching TV or film, uh, roughly about 10 hours a day. So people are on their screens a good portion of their day. So when I listen to you talk, and I think when most people hear what you're saying, the assumption is that this is a bad thing. Is it a bad thing? Uh, it is a bad thing in the sense that, uh, you know, there have been decades of research in the laboratory that shows that when people switch their attention uh, to doing different activities, when they multitask, we know that blood pressure rises uh, there's a physiological marker that indicates people are stressed. Uh, when people are asked subjectively their experience, they report psychological stress. We know that people make more errors when they switch their attention. Uh, there have been studies done with physicians and nurses and pilots and we know that people make errors when when they're uh, switching their attention. So 
I, I would say it's uh, it's a bad thing. And my research also shows that there is a correlation with frequency of switching your attention and stress. So the faster the the shifting, the higher is the stress as measured by heart rate monitors. In your research, when you watch people, as you were describing, working on a Word document, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle for no apparent reason, they go check social media, and you ask them why they did that, what do they say? Oh, there there are a lot of reasons. Uh, People can be bored. People might find that the task they're working on is just too hard. People have some memory that they or a curiosity that they want to satisfy. They they have this impulse, this urge that they they need to check. Uh, it's hard to you know contain that impulse. Um, sometimes uh, people do it to take a break. So there are lots of reasons. But attention span, when I think of attention span, I don't think of it as necessarily just one thing because I, I can be easily distracted, but boy, I can also laser focus when I have to. And those seem like very different things to me. Yes. And remember, we're talking about averages. And, and if we talk about the median, that might be a better way to think about it. The, the median is the midpoint of our observations, and the median is 40 seconds. That means half of all of our observations showed attention spans to be less than 40 seconds, but half of them were longer than 40 seconds. So sometimes, yes, sometimes people can focus for for longer periods of time. But, you know, half the time we're seeing this kind of rapid shifting and, you know, it averages out to be 47 seconds. Well, you know what I wonder is when it is time to focus for a longer period of time, does the fact that you're not focusing for a longer period of time, much of the time, make it harder to focus when it is time? I believe so. I can I can actually give you an example. So we looked at the data of when people were externally interrupted. That means you're interrupted by something outside of yourself, like a notification, a phone call. And we also looked at the data when people self-interrupted, right? They're, they're interrupting themselves. And we, we looked at the data on an hourly basis, and we found that when the ic- external interruptions decreased, when they declined, uh, the internal interruptions began to increase. So it's if you're not getting interrupted by some something outside of yourself, you you begin to interrupt yourself, and this suggests to me that people are conditioned to to interrupt themselves. They're conditioned to have short attention spans. When people are distracted, I mean, they know they're distracted. I know when I'm when I'm having a day where I'm having a lot of distractions, and I find it frustrating sometimes, people must have a sense that this is a problem. We do find a uh, relationship, a correlation. Uh, The more that people switch their attention, the lower is their uh, self-assessed productivity for that day. We haven't talked about email, but email is really one of the biggest factors for interruptions, whether it's 
externally or whether you interrupt yourself. And uh, we also find a correlation. The more time spent on email, the lower a person assesses their productivity for that day. From From a practical standpoint, you know, every time you switch your attention, you incur what's called a switch cost. And this is literally the amount of time that it takes for you to reorient and get back on track to this new task or activity that you're switching to. And so when we think in terms of productivity, you can add up all these switch costs. And that's that's time lost. I wonder if people sometimes think that this kind of distraction is helpful. And, and so here's an example. So you're sitting at your desk and you're, you know, doing something and you're not, you're not feeling like you're being particularly productive. So you go play solitaire because that maybe that'll, you know, distract you and you, a bright idea will pop into your head. Is that some of the reasoning that people do this or it's just much more unconscious than that? There are a lot of reasons why why people do these kinds of simple activities. And I actually argue that doing these kinds of simple but engaging activities can actually be beneficial for us if, if we do them strategically. And here's what I mean by that. There's a common narrative that we should try to have sustained focus as much as possible throughout the day because that's when we can be most productive. But we can't hold sustained focus for a long time in the same way that we can't lift weights for an extended period without getting exhausted, right? We, we have limited attentional resources and these, these can drain. They drain when we're, you know, being focused on something, uh, doing hard work, being challenged, uh, exerting mental effort. And so it's important to step back and take a break and replenish these resources. And one way we can do that is is by doing these kinds of simple activities because they keep our minds engaged, you know, lightly engaged, like playing solitaire. And there's really very little mental effort. And so it gives you a chance to just replenish and step back. And, you know, when you step back and you do something that's not requiring much mental effort, but but yet it's engaging. Um, it actually provides solace for people and actually makes people happy. And we found that in our research. When you study people and, and look at how distractible they are and how much they switch from one thing to another, do they recognize it? Like, do they, when you tell them, you know, this is what you did, they go, wow, that, I had no idea. Or is it, yeah, I know that. I, I think that most people do recognize that that they do. Uh, they may not recognize it that they're switching as fast as they think they are. I, I certainly didn't, when, uh, at least for myself, when I first started studying this. But uh, I think most people are, are quite self-aware that they are switching their attention uh, and, uh, you know, and they, they talk about it. And uh, I think most people actually want to do something about it. They, they, they don't want to be switching as much as they do, but, but I think they're quite self-aware that they do. 
Yet they could turn off notifications, they could turn off their phone, they could, they, they could make it easier to not be distracted pretty simply, and yet they don't. Sure, and a lot of people do turn off notifications, but that doesn't solve the problem that people are just as likely to self-interrupt as to be interrupted by something like a notification. There are these internal urges inside of us that uh, compel us to change screens, to, to go to social media, to work on a different task even. That's something that turning off notifications doesn't solve. So is this an issue that can be addressed? Or is this just something that's kind of interesting to watch as our attention spans shrink and we'll see what happens? You know, I'm very much influenced by the work of a very famous social psychologist, Albert Bandura, who was very interested in studying how to help people achieve self-efficacy in their behavior. So he helped people with, you know, stopping smoking, uh, stopping substance abuse. And I think that we can draw on his work to help people control their attention behavior. Bandura talks about becoming more intentional. You know, during the pandemic, I took a course in mindfulness, and it occurred to me that we could practice a similar kind of behavior when we're using our devices. And I call this meta-awareness, which means being aware of the actions you're doing as, as it's unfolding. And the, the idea here is to probe yourself and observe yourself and try to understand the reasons why you why you have urges to say go to social media or check your email and you can ask yourself what why are you doing this are you bored uh is the task too hard uh and and if you once you start to understand these reasons it it gives you a tool to be able to do something about it. And so I practice this on myself. And I ask myself, okay, if I have an urge to go to social media, will I really get value from it? I'll give you another uh, quick example. The idea of practicing forethought. And what that means is imagining how our current actions will impact our lives later in the future. And I think the best time frame is to think later in the day. So if I go and re read the news, and I am a news junkie, and if I end up spending a half hour reading the news, what's my life going to be like at 10 p.m., right? If I have a deadline today to work on, am I still going to be up working on that deadline? Or would I be able to watch a show, read a book, relax, have a glass of wine. And so practicing forethought is also a really good exercise. I imagine, though, that people could convince themselves, well, the reason I, I need to check the weather is because, you know, I need to check the weather. And, and well, oh, I got to check my bank balance because I really need to check my bank balance. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you don't need to. Maybe you're just trying to convince yourself you need to. Right. You you really don't need to do any of those things. However, why not do them at the beginning of the day? 
right? So we we find that it takes people a period of time to ramp up to get into a state of focus. So so do all these things at the beginning of the day. Get them out of the way. There is this researcher over 100 years ago. Her name was Bluma Zygarnik. And she found that when people have something unfinished, like an unfinished task, it stays in their mind and they they can't get it out of their mind. And so uh, checking your bank balance, <laughs> do it at the beginning of the day, get it out of your mind. Otherwise, it nags you, it stays with you, and it could be a source of self-interruption. But there's also that that recommendation, and we've talked about it, we've had people on talking about it here, you know, don't check your email first thing. That, that that's a waste of your, you know, resources. You're probably best in the morning and you're wasting it on email. Check it and see, I could no more wait until 10 o'clock to check my email than I, than I could fly to the moon. I, I have, if I, I'll do what you're talking about, I'll, I'll be wondering what I'm not seeing. Let me um, mention another result we found that uh, people actually have rhythms for for when they're focused. So there are certain times of the day when people are, are at their peak in focus. Um, for most people, it's usually mid-morning, late morning, and also mid-afternoon. And for most people that we studied, they, they don't start their day with peak focus. They, they have to ramp up. And so doing some of these rote activities or doing things to get them off your mental plate so you don't think about them is not a bad idea. You know, I bet there are things that we, I know I do this, it, distract yourself because you think these distractions are actually important and maybe they seem important in the moment, but in the big picture, maybe not so important. You know, you could do an experiment with yourself. So check your email first thing in the morning and then check it again at the very end of the day, nothing in between, and see how many problems have been taken care of. So things that seemed of utmost urgency, <laughs> you know, maybe you go back and look at your emails and at 11 o'clock, someone had this pressing problem. And then when you check it again at say five o'clock, you see, oh, the problem was solved. And, and check your email in reverse chronological order. And then you'll see exactly how many problems have already been solved. So I, I think you're right. What seems to be urgent at the moment uh, can be taken care of uh, with time. Well, I know for myself that when I'm switching screens or checking Facebook or email or whatever, a, a lot of the time it's just mindless. I'm not really thinking about it so much. I'm just doing it. And listening to you, it seems clear that maybe being a little more intentional about what you're doing can help you stop wasting time and instead focus better on what needs to be done. I've been speaking with Gloria Mark. She's a psychologist and professor at the University of California at Irvine and author of the book Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, uh, thanks Gloria. This was fun. Thanks so much, Mike. I really enjoyed this. The color of the mug or bowl or plate can actually make whatever you're eating or drinking taste sweeter or saltier. 
Research in the journal Perception found that people who ate cookies or cake made with less sugar served on a red plate rated them just as sweet as the sweeter version on another plate. Vanessa Horror, who's author of the study, explains that our brains associate red with sweet ripening fruit, and food or beverages surrounded by red taste richer and more luscious. The same trick works with blue plates and salt. Volunteers were convinced that popcorn served in a blue bowl had more salt than there actually was, and the popcorn in the red bowl tasted sweeter to them. And that is something you should know. Hey, how about leaving us a rating or review? It's easy to do, and it really does help us. So whether you listen on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform, if they have a way to leave a rating and review, which most of them do, please leave us one. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. Hey guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of season two of the hit podcast series, In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge seasons one and two of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen.